This is Albert Breer from the MMQB.com, and you're listening to Play Like a Jet. From Joe Namath's Super Bowl Guarantee. I got news for you, buddy. We're going to win the game, I guarantee you. To Ryan Fitzpatrick's contract holdout. Ryan Fitzpatrick, he has not shown up at camp. Where are we with Fitz versus the Jets? And everything in between. They froze. It appeared that Marino was going to try and stop the clock instead. He connected for the fourth time with Mark Ingram. And it is juggled and caught by Jumbo Elliott. This is Play Like a Jet, your weekly look back at some of the best. The New York Jets are the world champions. They have upset the Baltimore Colts and beat them handily here today. And worse. Vince Wilfork is going to throw Brandon Moore back into his quarterback. He's going to fumble the football. Mark Sanchez not expecting it. And it was the backside of Brandon Moore that knocked the ball out. Moments in New York Jets history. So get ready to hop in your DeLorean and take a trip back in time. Are you telling me you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? For an in-depth look at the most memorable games, seasons, players, and events in the history of gangrene, it's time to play like a Jet. Play like a Jet? What does that mean? With your hosts, Scott Mason and Big John Sparapolis. And welcome to Play Like a Jet, your weekly look back at the biggest moments in New York Jets history. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter at PlayLikeAJet1. And I am joined, as always, by my tag team partner, the one and only six foot two, two 265 pounds, and the man who I'm sure ate about four turkeys by himself on Thanksgiving, Mr. Big John Sparopoulos. What's going on, John? Scotty, I'm doing all right. Uh, the good news was, was how the game's scheduled out for Thanksgiving, that I was able to see Jets Patriots down here in the DFW area on Sunday. The bad news was I got to watch the game as well. Scotty, uh, that's another uh, another loss for our Jets. Yeah, a tough one, too, because there were a lot of Patriots fans at the game. Some empty seats, too, but, man, a lot of Patriot fans. And every time the Patriots would score, you would hear a roar from the crowd, which is never a good sign when the Patriots are in an opposing stadium. I will say the funniest thing that happened had nothing to do with the game. We were sitting there, and I told this story on Twitter. A guy who was a row in front of me and a little bit over to the left started yelling and screaming. This was in the fourth quarter about how bad Todd Bowles is. And he said, Todd Bowles is the worst coach in Jets history. He's 13-31 and 31 in the last three seasons. So I said, Rich Kotite was 4-28. and 28. And he yelled back, Bowles is worse. He's 13 and 31. So everybody that was sitting around me was just scratching their head like, what? I just said, yeah, pretty sure you don't understand basic math, but that's okay. I hope for that guy's sake that he was drunk because otherwise he's really a complete moron. But yeah, I have to say as bad as Todd Bowles is, and don't get me wrong, I can't stand the sight of his face anymore. Nothing personal, just coach Todd Bowles. I was talking to somebody about this a couple of weeks ago. I have nothing against Todd Bowles, the human being. Todd Bowles, the coach, I've had enough of. I would like to see him out of here yesterday. But he does not compare to Rich Kotite. And anybody that thinks he does either wasn't around back then or has amnesia. Because, John, you and I remember it well. Rich Kotite was the worst coach possibly in NFL history, if not certainly in Jets history. I guess if you're a Browns fan, you could make that case for Hugh Jackson, who just went 3-37. and But Kotite's certainly in the discussion, and without a doubt, the worst coach in Jets history, right? Yes, Scott, as far as uh, worst coach ever, uh, 
Rich Totite does have a seat at the table uh, right next to Mr. Hugh Jackson, who, good for him. He got a job in Ohio, went back to the Cincinnati Bengals, and boy, did Baker Mayfield not like him. <laughs> I saw that. And listen, everybody knows that I had Donald ranked as my number one quarterback, but didn't expect the Jets to get him. I had zeroed in on Mayfield, who I was a big fan of and still am. And he's been lighting it up, by the way, since Hugh Jackson was fired by the Cleveland Browns. And it pains both John and I to root for Baker Mayfield, in a sense, because he was the quarterback of the hated Oklahoma Sooners. But, man, what he did with Hugh Jackson on Sunday was outstanding. Refused to pretend that he liked Jackson after Jackson went around after he was fired and complained that his players weren't good enough for him to win with. And Baker Mayfield was having none of that. And he just basically said, look, I'm not going to hug this guy. He went around trashing my teammates and I. Then he went to a rival team after he's there the whole season. And then he goes and takes a job with a team that he knows he's going to be playing us. I have no respect for this guy. Now, I don't really care about the whole thing, taking a job with the Bengals. Look, Hugh Jackson's got to do what he's got to do. Once you're fired, you go and do whatever. It still reminds me of people that got mad at Chad Pennington for signing with the Dolphins. Look, the Jets cut Chad Pennington, so he's got to go where he's got to go. But, man, Baker Mayfield just telling Hugh Jackson to stick it right where the sun don't shine. Right, John? Yes, Johnny. Um, if you look at his before and after numbers, like you mentioned, since Hugh, Hugh Jackson was fired, boy, he's, he's like he's playing like he did at Oklahoma, and uh, the rest of the league should be put on notice. 100%. And the Jets got the first game of Maker Mayfield and couldn't handle it. I don't even know what would happen if they faced this Baker Mayfield with the way that they're playing. I also made a joke the other day during the game that for all the people that wanted Josh McCown to start, hey, he's averaging 11.5 points per game since taking over the offense. So things not going well at all for the New York Jets and things looking a lot better for the Browns ever since they fired Hugh Jackson. John, it makes you think maybe this talk about stability was a pile of nonsense because ever since the Browns got rid of their underperforming head coach and offensive coordinator, their young rookie quarterback has turned things around Maybe the Jets made a huge mistake not letting Todd Bowles go after the Buffalo loss. Yes, Scotty, that's definitely one argument that could be made. Unfortunately, they didn't go that route. They probably won't do that anytime soon before the uh, first Monday after the regular season. But hey, we got a handful of games left before we can talk about draft season. Draft season seems to be the carrot at the end of the stick every single year for New York Jets fans, except, of course, 1968, when the team won their one and only Super Bowl. And we've been blessed over the last five weeks to talk to John Schmidt, who is the starting center on that team in 1968. He's had some incredible stories, and his memory is so sharp. I can't believe that he remembers things from 50 years ago like they happened yesterday. I guess when you're on a Super Bowl winner... That tends to happen because it's something that you never, ever forget, and those memories get tucked away in the recesses of your brain to never leave. But still, just phenomenal stories. And I have to say, John, when we started this show, we both agreed that even though the more popular series were probably going to be the newer ones because the younger fans were around for them, this was a series we always wanted to do. And if we can't do a series on the year the Jets won the Super Bowl, we might as well not even do a history show about the Jets, right? Yes, Scotty, that's correct. If we can't cover the one glorious Super Bowl run, why are we even talking? 
100%. And hopefully we get another glorious Super Bowl run soon. Hopefully it's built around Sam Darnold. But for now, we've got the one from 1968. We're in the midst of the 50th anniversary. John Schmidt's been talking to us about it. It's time to get into part six right now. What do you say, John? You ready to go talk to John Schmidt? Ah, jeez. Scotty, I'd love to, but um, looks like I've been tapped for another interview. Another interview? What now? Yeah, Scotty, um, mutual friend of ours, close personal friend, national championship coach of our Texas Longhorns, Mac Brown, has uh, stepped down from his position at ESPN, and he's taking over the uh, head coaching gig at the University of North Carolina football team. Wow, Mac Brown back where it all began at North Carolina. He had the head coaching job there before he got hired away by Texas. And then, like you said, the 2006 National Championship game where I was just going out of my mind. I remember I was at Mohegan Sun, and we were watching on the TVs there. Just an incredible game still to this day. And I granted, I'm biased a little bit because of the fact that Texas won, but still the best football game I've personally ever watched. So I always have a soft spot in my heart for Mac Brown. So he's going back to North Carolina now. I'm glad to see that he's back in the coaching ranks. But, John, what exactly does that have to do with you? Yes, Scotty, from back in my days of being a – volunteer assistant coach on the JV football team. I had the pleasure of meeting Mac Brown at some training camps, and he took a liking to me. We've been friends ever since, and he thought, hey, who would be better to take my spot on the ESPN college football desk than Big John? I had no idea that you were friends with Mac Brown. We've been friends 20 years, and every week on this show, I learned something new about you, John. Scotty, that's true. Each and every single week, I learn something new about myself. (laughs) All right. Well, listen, if ESPN wants to try you out, you go ahead down there. And look, especially coming in to take the place of the great Mac Brown, I'm not going to stand in your way. So you go interview with ESPN. Try and make Coach Brown proud. I'll go talk to John Schmidt, and we'll meet back here. How's that? Scotty, as always, sounds like a plan. Talk to you soon. You talk about not being able to buy a Super Bowl ring. And you would find that out the hard way later on, but we'll get to that down the line. I believe you have an interesting story to tell about something involving your Super Bowl ring, but we'll get there. First, let's stop in San Diego, though, the following week. As you said, you guys ended up winning. The defense dominated, allowing only two first downs in the first half and picking off John Hadle four times in the game. You hold the Chargers to 235 yards while posting 510 yards of your own offense. You also held the great Lance Allworth, one of the greatest wide receivers in NFL history, to only 33 yards. This was one of Namath's finest games as a pro. He went 17 of 31 for 337 yards with two touchdowns and an interception. Namath goes to Maynard for 87 yards in the first quarter, which was a team record for a single quarter. The Jets led 20 to nothing in the second quarter and ended up winning 37-15. Jim Turner kicks three more field goals, setting a pro football record at the time of 31 field goals made. On the season, you win it 37-15, and now you are 8-3 and and clinch a tie for the division title. The Jets played one of their finest games ever against the San Diego Chargers. Now, Jim Turner has kicked 28 field goals this year, which ties the all-time all-pro record. 13-yard field goal attempt by Turner. The snap for really holding. The kick is on the way. It is good. This is a must-must game for San Diego and certainly is just as important to the Jets. Although the Jets, uh, with a record of 7-3, are well in front of the Eastern Division. Houston, riding with a record of 5-6, and six, 
will play Kansas City on Thanksgiving afternoon. Namath fakes the draw, drops back to pass. He throws long for Maynard down the far side. Don's got the ball at midfield. He's down to the 40, down to the 30, into the clear at the 20, the 15, the 10, the 5. Touchdown! Don Maynard. He shook Bob Howard, the only defender who was out there, and Maynard was in the clear the last 45 yards. First and goal at the three. Snell on the handoff. Snell going wide. Touchdown. He cut for the left tackle hole and then went for the outside with Bill Mathis blocking in and Bob Talamini leading the play. And the Jets score from the three and now go ahead by a score of ten. I beg your pardon, by a score of 16 to nothing. First and ten of the 19. Namath back to throw on a first down. Joe looking, Joe throwing for the end zone. Mathis wide open, touchdown! It was a spectacular show of offense as the Jets rolled to a 37-15 win. But the relentless Jet defense was equally impressive. Listen to the tough time they gave Charger quarterback John Hadel. Here's a slot left, Hadel back to pass, looking long, throwing long for Allworth. He's out there, but it's intercepted. It is intercepted by Billy Baird. Back of the 80, comes up with a 10 to the 15 to the 20, and runs out of bounds on the 29-yard line. Lance Allworth running a post pattern as Hadel going for the bomb on a great call, I thought, Sam. Trying to hit the Jets after that big kickoff return. But Billy Beard picked it off and brought it back to the 29-yard line. Second and 10 on the Charger 10-yard line. Verlin Biggs in at right end. The tackles are John Elliott and Paul Rochester. And the defensive left end is Jerry Philbin. Hadel dropping back near the end zone to throw. Hadel throwing back up the middle. And it's intercepted off the hands of Allworth by Randy Beverly at the 27. Down to the 20. He cuts still on his feet at the 20. Tries to go wide. Garrison has him. Now he spins off Garrison and Allworth brings him down to the 21-yard line. Hadel calls it. Hadel drops back. Hadel looks into the end zone. He throws. Knocked down by big bad John Elliott. Big Ben John got his hands in the ball to knock it down, and the Jets take over at the nine-yard line. Hadel back to pass on a first down. In the pocket. Now he runs out of the pocket. He is being chased. He throws in the run. It's intercepted by Gordon on the 39. Gordon at the 40, cuts back to the 39, and down he goes. Garrison made the tackle. Hadel throwing on the run, and that is the fourth interception this afternoon. It was a day of total frustration for Hadel as the Jets' pass rush kept him running for his life. And with this victory, the Jets clinched at least a tie for their division title. Let's start with Lance Allworth. I know you weren't a defender, but I'm sure you could appreciate how great Lance Allworth was and what an accomplishment it was for your defense to be able to hold this guy to three catches and 33 yards on this day, right? And, you know, I don't know. I don't really know who covered him that day because he ran like we called him Bambi. You know, that was his nickname because he ran like a deer. I mean, he would <laughs> he would jump over people. I mean, he, he was so fast, and he had moves that were so unbelievable. And and how we held him to that little bit is just a, just unbelievable. But we, you know, as I said, the team somehow came together. And, and I can't tell you that it was in the locker room before the game. But as the game went on, it, 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 we got, we just kept on getting more confident and just, we were so happy the way we turned things around and what, and once you get things going in the right direction, you know, you, it, you just don't stop and you just kept going and we kept going and kept going and, you know, the defense held, the offense didn't get us in trouble. We did good. Jim turned the kick field. Everybody did something that was really good and we didn't hurt ourselves. That was the big thing. Joe Namath had an enormous day on this day, 17 of 31, 337 yards, two touchdowns, as I mentioned, and 87 yards to Maynard in just the first quarter. Was this a situation where you watch Namath do his thing and you realize, man, if Joe can play like this, 
nobody can beat us, especially when the defense is playing that well. And also, tell me a little bit about just how special that Namath to Maynard connection was. Oh, it's, they they had they you know they had special signals the two of them, uh, and they were, they were simple. But they but he would put either put up his hand, he, like Joe, come to me. I got it. Just come to me. All right, and Joe, I, and Joe, I'll tell you, I remember in that day, you know, people won't believe this, but when Joe threw the ball that day, I heard it whistle going over my head a number of times. He he had velocity on that ball that was unbelievable that day. And I'm not saying that was the only day, by the way, but he actually, you could hear the ball whistle as it went went over. So he was on, Maynard was on, and once we got it going, it's like anything. Once you're on it, you stay on it, you know, and, and, uh, and we did that day. We did that that game, that whole game. One other thing you did that day was clinch at least a tie for the division title. How good did that feel? Oh, light years better than the year before, <laughs> 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 where we lost by a half a game. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was such a great feeling, and I mean, it was just to know we had a chance. We were there. All we had to do was win another game, all right, and then we would be in. Uh, and 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 you know you. It's just a good feeling, you know, coming from where we came from after the Heidi game to where we got to after the San Diego game was light years apart, you know, light years apart. And the following week was the week that you would have the opportunity to go past the division title tie and actually win the division, would you? Well, the Miami Dolphins were in your way, so you would have to get by them. You're leading 14-10 at halftime on two touchdown passes by Namath, one to Maynard and the other to Pete Lamons. In the fourth quarter, Jim Kick put the Dolphins up 17-14. But Bay Perilli, who had come in off the bench, led the team to three touchdowns in the final period, two to Don Maynard and one to Bake Turner. Maynard catches seven passes for 160 yards and three touchdowns. Jets win 35-17. The record is now 9-3, and and the division is yours. When Kansas City beat Houston Thanksgiving Day, the Jets were kings of the Eastern Division. But the Jets weren't content to rest on their laurels. They saddled the Miami Dolphins with a 35-17 loss as Don Maynard, that West Texas Cowboy, had quite a day. Namath going back to pass in the pocket. He is throwing to the far side for Maynard. Down to the 35, down to the 30, down to the 25, the 20, the 15, the 10, the 5. Touchdown! Jimmy Warren came up on Maynard on the 35. Maynard took the pass. Warren grabbed for him. Maynard gave him a stiff arm and went 54 yards on the pass and run for a touchdown. Wide to the right. Maynard to the left to Sauer. And back to pass is Pirelli. Pirelli throwing long for Maynard. He's wide open. He's going if he catches the ball and he does. Don Maynard. And the Jets go back in front 20-17. to 17. Don Maynard has just set a career record of 9,275 yards pass catching. That's a pro football career record. And I don't think Weeb cares if he wears sideburns or not. (laughs) Wide to the right is Maynard to the left is Sauer. It is third down and 10 on the 25. Perilli to pass. Perilli in the pocket. Throwing for Maynard. He's out there. Touchdown! This time he beat Jimmy Warren. A standing ovation for Don Maynard, who caught a 47-yard bomb a moment ago. He has just hauled one in for 25 yards. Dave Herman gives him congratulations, and the Jets now lead 27-17. to 
Don't mean it. What happened today? There was one touchdown, I think the last one you caught, where you were all alone. I think it was uh, Warren was covering you, and you broke away. You were 20 yards clear of him when you caught the ball. What happened on that one? Well, I'd just like to say I put a good fake on him, but I really don't know. I had to see it in the film. They might have had a coverage. might have been busted, but I'm not sure. Well, that was my first reaction, that you had really twisted and turned him every which way. Perhaps he was covering short, and the safety was supposed to cover long. Well, at first I thought maybe it was, but uh, he went with me as deep as he did on the first part of the pattern, and then uh, he just hung there, and it wasn't anybody deep. So I uh, I like to think it actually it was just uh, I just beat him, and uh, he went for the first part of the fake, and as a result, I... Got behind him and babe later in there just right. So is there some champagne celebrations going on in the locker room at this point? Oh, I want to tell you something. When Babe came in, I mean Dave Herman was <laughs> Babe Babe would get so excited. You'd think he was in his rookie year, all right? And and there was dirt it was the field was dirt and it wasn't asphalt turf, so we had some dirt on the field. And Babe Babe started drawing a play in the sand. To Maynard and and George Sauer, I want you to do this. And Herman yells over them, "Hey, babe, this isn't Sandlot football. <laughs> this is a national football. I swear to God." He yells, "This isn't Sandlot. Just call the play, babe. Just call the play." But Babe would get so excited. Oh my God, it was so and was so great. And I got to tell you, it was a scary thing. It was great winning that game. Okay, now we're now we're flying home. Okay, and you know you get in there, and and in those days they gave us a couple of six packs of beer to to, to kill the pain on the airplane ride home. And Randy and I, Randy Rasmussen and I are are sitting next to each other, and you know we're all celebrating, we're all happy. We know where we're going, we know what we're doing. Everything's great. Couldn't be greater, right? And I, I look look out the window. We've been up in the air for about 15, 20 minutes. And I look out of the window and I say to Randy, I said, Randy, look, you know, we're in a low pattern. Look how close to the ground we are, you know? And he, he goes, yeah. He says, man, we're not, we're not 7,000, 8,000 feet in the air, you know? We've been up in the air for 15 to 20 minutes. And with that, the pilot comes over the PA system and says, ladies and gentlemen, we, we seem to develop a problem. We're on a 727 three-engine plane. He says, uh, we've lost our number three engine, and we've had to power down our number two engine. And he says, we're going into crash procedures, so please pay attention to the stewards as we get back, try to get back to the airport. Well, the stewardess is a client. Oh my God! I'm not kidding you. This tortoise is a client. So we turn around and we're going. We're heading back to Miami Airport. They put us way out, away from everything. And you can see the fire trucks out there. They get the foam. The the runways are foamed, and we're coming in. And you know, and we're we're coming in to crash. We're just a crash landing. And because we're loaded, we got everybody in the world on the plane, all the equipment, all the reporters, all the all, everybody's on this plane. This plane is flying heavy, all right? It wasn't flying heavy. It was coming down hard and heavy. So we all look around at each other, say a prayer, wave, to just hope to God this plane stays together when we hit. So we hit, and this plane hits hard and goes up in the air. It comes down again and hits and then goes back up in the air. And then it comes down for the third time and it fishtails and it finally comes to a halt, okay? And I, I can't tell you that there was a dry seat in the house. I don't Oh my god. <laughs> it, was, it, it was probably there was it was just silence 
probably for just at 30 seconds or 40 seconds, but it seemed like it was 20 minutes, all right, the silence in the plane, because we were just clear. We never thought we were going to live through this, all right? So Coach Eubank, you know, he's, he's the best. He's gentlemen, thank our Lord for being getting down here safe. Now we're going to pull in. We're going to have another plane come in tonight. So you guys, number one, call call everybody, call your families. As soon as we get into the airport, call the families because they're going to be worried. He said, number two, we have another plane coming in tonight. For you guys who want to go home, we have a plane. For you guys who don't want to go home, you can stay over. We'll have a plane take you home tomorrow. And that's the and, and he says, I got the first round at the bar. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, I tell you, that was that was the happiest and scariest day in my life, as far as football goes. Because uh, we didn't know that we were going to live through it. You know, unbelievable. That's one of those things where you just count your blessings. You're on cloud nine because you win the division, and then yeah. you get home and you have a near death experience. Correct. Correct, you know. But uh, that was that was that game, and uh, it was it was great. It was we finished we we finished well. We were a little worry in between there, but we finished well. Let's take it down a little bit because I think we were like you said that plane ride. We were all the way up, then all the way down, then all the way up, then all the way down, and all the way down. Let's bring it back down to somewhere in the middle here and talk a little bit about Jim Kick, who, as we know, was one heck of a player. He had a key score here that almost ended up giving the Dolphins the victory, but the Jets were able to pull this one out. Tell me a little bit about Jim Kick. You played against him a lot. What were your thoughts on playing him? Oh, he, he and he and Zonka were, you know, they were my buddies. To, to, to this day, they're my buddies, all right? And uh, they they were some combination. You know, Zonka was just a powerful, powerful. He put his head down. He would rather run through you than run around you. But Kick was a he had speed, and he he was smaller, of course, and faster. And he liked to run around people. He wasn't uh, he wasn't as tough at running through people as Zonka was. But they were they were one hell of a combination. I mean, Mister One and Mister Two. I, you, it would be tough. To, you know, there are only a couple of combinations in the whole league at that time uh, that were tougher than them. One combination that might have been tougher, at least for officials, were Walt Michaels and Jim Hudson. You mentioned before about Walt getting fined for his complaints after the Heidi game. Jim Hudson also fined, and the team as a whole fined $2,000, which is incredible at the time. So I guess Walt wasn't the only one that was kind of losing his cool, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you. It's, you know, we're, <laughs> we are family. You win it together, you lose it together. <laughs> I guess people lost their temper together that day, huh? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely, man. So the next week, now that you have the division clinched, you are playing the Cincinnati Bengals. You lead this one from the outset and never look back. Two Namath touchdown passes, one to Sauer, one to Maynard in the first quarter. Puts you out to a 14-point lead. Game gets a little bit close, 20-14. to 14. But a touchdown pass from Pirelli to Turner from 34 yards out clinches the win. So first thing I want to ask is, this is the second week in a row Pirelli is getting in there and getting some action to quarterback. Was this just a matter of trying some different things, some different formations? Was Weeb trying to preserve Namath? What was going on here that Pirelli was seeing snaps at quarterback? I think it was more protection than anything else. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to take a chance of Joe getting hurt. 
we know we had we knew we had we had our division one. We wanted to make sure we had Joe for the championship game. And this is also the second week in a row that Perilli gets a touchdown pass to Bake Turner. Turner's not a guy that gets talked about a lot, but two weeks in a row he's coming up big here. So talk to me a little bit about Turner and did it seem like Perilli and Turner had some sort of connection there because Turner wasn't one of the top receivers and Perilli was the backup to Namath, but they seemed to find each other when they were playing. Well, they practice. You got to understand. Joe Joe practiced with the starters, they practiced with the backups. Bake was a backup. So he threw to him and he knew his moves. Babe knew Bake's moves. So that's the reason why, you know, they, they practiced with each other. They he threw to Babe to, to Bake every day. And they he knew, you know, all of all of the routes and the way that Bake would run those routes. So they were very comfortable with each other. The big story here though in this game, even though you won a lot of injuries happening here, and you mentioned that Weeb was nervous and kind of trying to look to preserve Joe Namath. Taking a look at this list of injuries will give you a good idea of why he may have decided to do that. Don Maynard comes out of the game in the first quarter after coming up limp. The Jets call it a slight hamstring pull. Maynard calls it a cramp, said he could have played, but still he does end up coming out of the game at a certain point even though he still had five catches for 103 yards and a touchdown. So that was the worst of Don Maynard, right? Five catches, 103 yards, right. and a touchdown yeah. a injured. Bad, a, bad, a bad day. Right. A bad day. <laughs> exactly. A bad day for Don Maynard is like a career day for most of these guys. But also, George Sauer strained his elbow. Bill Mathis bruised his left shoulder. Dave Herman bruises his left ankle. Bob Talamini sprains his neck. Nothing was serious, and Dr. Nicholas said that Maynard might not play in the season finale, but everybody would be fine for the AFL title game, which at this point was all that really mattered. The final score here was 27-14, and now you're 10-3, and but you already had the division, and I know that Dr. Nicholas is saying that these injuries aren't anything serious, but this has got to be a little bit concerning, right? Because you're coming down the home stretch, and you don't want to see all these guys banged up. Well, yeah, but you know, you know, this is uh, this is football. When you get down to the thirteenth, fourteenth, fifteenth, sixteenth game, now, I mean, then it was only fourteen. But when you, once you get past the tenth game, everybody's beat up, everybody's hurting, everybody's got nicks. They may even have breaks. I mean, but uh, that's football, and you know, you gotta you gotta work your way through that as best you can. And nobody's playing the fourteenth game uh, healthy. All right. Uh, everybody has a nick. Everybody's hurting. And uh, you just want to get through that and get on to the championship game, and that's what we did. There's part six of our in-depth discussion on the 1968 season, the Super Bowl year, the one and only time that the Jets won it all. 50 years ago with John Schmidt, the center from that team. Just more absolutely incredible memories from John Schmidt on this one. And I think it's interesting that he talked about the game in San Diego. If you listen back to part one, he talked about how his very first time with the team is when Weeb Eubank came to the job that he was at, picked him up, and they flew out in the middle of the night to San Diego. So kind of came full circle for him. I'm so happy that John Schmidt was willing to take the time to go through this whole season with us because it really has been incredible. 
I hope that you've caught all six parts of this. If you have missed the previous five, please go into our archives and check them out. He has shared some fantastic memories. The kind of thing that, like I said, I can't believe he remembers after all these years, but I'm so grateful for him coming on the show and sharing these stories with us. I'm also grateful for the fact that my tag team partner, Big John Sparopoulos, was able to interview at ESPN to potentially replace Coach Mac Brown, the Texas coaching legend who coached the Longhorns to a national championship in 2006 and is now going back to be the head coach at North Carolina, leaving his ESPN spot open. So Mac Brown, being a friend of John's, which I just found out myself, recommended John for the spot. So John was going to ESPN to interview for the job. John, how'd it go? Well, Scotty, as always, in the beginning, it went pretty well. You know, they kind of uh, asked me some in-depth questions about myself and my uh, college football expertise. But then somebody uh, came in to interview me named Dan Orlovsky. Oh, Dan, friend of the show. He was on our Getting to Know the Quarterback series. Great guy. Very knowledgeable about football. Very knowledgeable. In fact, when he was on... I said to Jeff Lloyd, who's the host of Locked On Browns and former co-host of draft season here on Turn on the Jets Digital, that it was only going to be a matter of time before ESPN or NFL Network hired Dan, and sure enough, ESPN hired him. How is he doing? Uh, Scotty, he's doing pretty well, and he has quite the memory, obviously, being an NFL quarterback. And um, he remembered that time um, that I had a Hofstra as the number two team in the nation uh, last year with the uh, power ranking. And more importantly, the time I didn't show up to do the show with uh, yours truly and Mr. Orlovsky. So about 10 minutes after speaking to him, I was escorted out by ESPN6 security. (laughs) Oh, man, that's terrible. I feel bad. I should send Dan a message and ask him why he did that. I guess he took it as a personal slight that you didn't show up to talk to him when we did the Getting to Know the Quarterback series. Yeah, Scotty, I don't want to say Dan holds a grudge with everybody, but I think he might have held one with me. Sorry to hear that, John, but listen, there will be other opportunities. Lord knows you've had so many of them on a weekly basis that we find out about here on Play Like a Jet, right? Yes, Scotty, uh, my future's so bright, I gotta wear shades. We'll see what next week comes along with. Absolutely, but before we get to next week, I want to ask you about last week. How was your Thanksgiving? Uh, Scotty, it was pretty good. I think um, from the intro, I had about five turkeys myself. You know, I was watching the games, <laughs> waiting for uh, maybe Colt McCoy and Mark Sanchez to show up late and get dessert. But uh, after losing to the Cowboys, I think they hightailed it back to D.C. Yeah, it was a weird Thanksgiving. I did what I always do, ate a lot of food laid on the couch, watched football, and then when the football was over, it was time to watch reruns of The Sopranos. We're up to season six this time, so talking about everything going on towards the very end of the show. And just in case you haven't seen The Sopranos, I'm not going to spoil it right now, but it was an interesting season, and the ending remains one of the more controversial television finales of all time. But I'm glad to hear you had a good Thanksgiving. I did too, and I was glad to see the Cowboys win because if nothing else... It gives you something to hear about down in the DFW area, John. All right, geez, Scotty. Boy, has the narrative changed in the past month. Uh, hey, let's lose the rest of the games and fire Jason Garrett. Uh, oh, my goodness, we've won the last three games in a row. We might make the playoffs. So, boy, give it another week. If they lose to the Saints, the sky will be falling again. 
That's what happens when you're in a division that the Patriots aren't in. It's actually possible to win that division from time to time, right? Uh, yes, Scotty. Every now and again, other teams get those opportunities, but uh, not here in the AFC uh, East. Nope, and hopefully that stops soon. Tom Brady is 41. We can only keep our fingers crossed and hope that at some point this torture ends. It's been going on for almost two decades, so... Please, Tom Brady, just go home, hang out with Giselle, and leave the Patriots in someone else's hands so that the Jets and other teams can have a shot. But in the meantime, while we wait for the Patriots to falter, we have to see if the Jets can rise up and maybe try and take the reins sometime over the next couple of years. It may not be this year, but you never know what could happen down the stretch. If the Jets get hot, at least we'll have some optimism going into next season if Sam Darnold comes back from the injury and plays well. And you want to make sure that you're tuned into all of our great podcasts here at Turn the Jets Digital so that you're up to date with everything going on, including the Daryl Slater podcast that we do every Monday and Friday where we go through the latest news. On Monday, we also recap the game. And on Friday, we preview the upcoming game. We've got Joe Blewett doing TOJ Film Room with Marcus Coleman, the former New York Jet. That's on our YouTube channel, Turn on the Jets TV. We've got the Jet Take Live every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock with Ben Blessington and Kyle Fahey. They recently had Manish Mehta from the Daily News, who apparently was angry at me recently, and I talked about this, that I didn't give him credit for the Quincy Inunua contract extension story, not because I didn't want to give him credit, because I didn't know that it was his story, so I rectified that situation, but Manish was great on the Jet Take with Kyle and Ben, so if you haven't heard that episode yet, go ahead and check it out. There's a Turn on the Jets podcast with Joe Caparoso. He's got some great guests on every single week. And he actually did three shows the week before Thanksgiving. A bonus show involving Le'Veon Bell and his thoughts on that. So lots in the archives there if you want to check that out. What's your point with Pauly Brzez and Dalvin Asario? This past week, Greg Armstrong pitched in for Dalvin and Michael Nania, who's the host of one of our other shows, Know Your Foe, which takes an in-depth look at the Jets' opponents every single week. He was the special guest judge. It was a lot of fun. We were kind of salty and just making jokes on this episode after the Jets got trashed by the Patriots, so you can check that out as well. And perhaps the crown jewel of the whole podcast empire, there's always next year, with the godfather of New York Jets podcast, Brian Bassett. He's joined by his buddies, Chef Travis Milton and Josh Conrad, although this week Travis was unavailable, so it was just Josh and Brian Bassett. They have a unique way of looking at the Jets, and Lord knows at this point you kind of have to look at the Jets in a unique way if you're going to keep your sanity. Great show. I listen every week. You should, too. Check it out at Turn on the Jets Digital. Quick shout-out to our good buddy Alan Schechter, the producer of this show and also the editor over at EmpireWritesBack.com. He does a terrific job covering all things New York sports, including our beloved Jets. God help him. John, I know that on Thanksgiving, while you were laying around after eating all that food and once the games were over, you wanted to check in and see what the latest was on all your favorite New York teams since you're down in DFW and they don't cover them. And Alan came through for you again, didn't he? Yes, Scotty, he sure did. I believe that's where I first heard about the uh, James Paxton trade for the Yankees. So, Alan, much appreciating that feeling of home every time I read your, your stuff. Alan, you do a great job on this show and a great job at EmpireWritesBack.com. If you're not visiting that website, you should make it a regular visit right now. Put it in your bookmarks, EmpireWritesBack.com. Thanks again to John Schmidt for joining us this week. Really looking forward to getting into Part 7 on the 1968 Super Bowl season next week. Aren't you, Bart Scott? Can't wait! 
Thanks, Bart. Hope you had a happy Thanksgiving, and I'm really looking forward to your thoughts on the Jets coaching search once Todd Bowles is out of here and we take a look at the potential candidates to replace him. I'm sure you'll have incredible insight, as you generally do when it comes to football matters. That's going to do it for us this week. My name is Scott Mason. My tag team partner is Big John Sparopoulos. And, John, I believe you know there's only one way that we can end this show. That's right, Scotty. A pleasure as always. And ESPN, I'm not done with you. I'll make sure to get another interview gig, maybe when you uh, redo the Monday Night Football cast. Break, break it down. One, two, three. In the home of the Jets.